This is Dave Broadbeck uh, here talking to you, and as I guess you'd imagine, considering the name of the podcast. And uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from the fall term in 2018 from Algoma University. It is Biology uh, and also Psychology 2606, Brain and Behavior. Hope you enjoy it. All right, so today we're going to get to... This is kind of the fun stuff for me. Uh, this one and the drugs one are, are probably the ones I like doing the most. This is just cool stuff. The drug stuff I teach neuropharmacology, so we spend a lot of time on And also people find drugs in Um, Okay. Otto von Levy, and I think that's how you pronounce that name, did a really neat experiment in 1921. So what he did is he, he has a frog, and it's opened up. Again, this is a long time ago. It's almost 100 years ago. Please don't go protest about the frogs. They are long dead. So he's got this frog widely open, slightly open on a thin cord, and he's, he stimulates the vagus nerve uh, in the frog's heart, and that slows down the heart. He knew that already. That was, that, that's not the discovery. Okay? That's not the cool discovery. The cool discovery is, well, the next thing he does is he pours a solution over the heart. Okay? He pours a solution over the heart. And that solution, of course, is Kool-Aid. No, it wasn't. Saline solution, of course. Pours that over the heart and collects it. So now he's got, the, now he, now he's got another frog. A lot of frogs were harmed in this work. And he pours the, the solution over the, frog, the second frog's heart, and of course, its heart slowed down. So what's happened here is he's actually collected some chemical that was made in the first frog that had the same effect in the second frog, right? He called this stuff that he collected Vegastoff. Because it's German, and there's only three words in German, all the other words are just compound words. So it's literally Vegas, Vegas nerve, like Vegas stuff. Today we call it acetylcholine, because that's chemically what it is. It's choline with an acetyl group on But I wish we would have kept the name Vegas stuff, because it's a great word. of the Germans, and they're known for the efficiency, right? We have four words, we just put them all together in different ways. Now, he did the same thing. He stimulated the heart rate of a different set of frogs. Now, these frogs are long dead. Uh, he's got some other frogs, and he gets a sped-up heart, and he calls that stuffen the up in the heart. No, he didn't. It's epinephrine. Heart fast and the, you know, it's something like that. No, I don't know. That's happened now. Well, so it's happened after more adrenaline. Something's called adrenaline. Um, in fact, this is how they used to restart your heart, right? Back in the before there was the uh, thing with the clear. You know what that's called? That's what doctors call it. It's a technical term. Um, <laughs> They used to use what's called a heart needle. They, they still exist, but um, you see Pulp Fiction, right? And basically go right through the, well, you, you actually can't. You have to cut the, and then cut the ribs. But anyway, and you take this needle and you go right into the heart with adrenaline, and that should, if you're, if it's going to restart, it's metal. Heart. Okay. So basically, he discovers the first, these are the first discoveries of neurotransmitters. The cool thing about neurotransmitters is they're basically the same in any animal that has them. So acetylcholine in a frog is the same as acetylcholine in a human. It's the same molecule. Right? There's nothing magic about it. One of the things I like about sort of biological approach to psychology is it shows that we're just all people and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what language you speak. Acetylcholine is acetylcholine. It doesn't matter what religion you have or don't have. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. Acetylcholine is acetylcholine is acetylcholine. It doesn't matter what your species is. 
They're just bags of chemicals. Some people find it depressing, and I just find it really, really cool. So, the synapse itself, this is where that, like they knew that there was electrical activity. He sped up those and slowed down hearts using electrons. And remember Galvani's experiments from way back when. Um, everybody knew it was electric, there was something electrical going on, and people thought, was all the transmission electrical, or was all the transmission between neurons, because they always discovered neurons, uh, yeah. um, was it chemical? So those sort of controversies. And Levy goes to show here that it's got to be chemical. And Sherrington has showed back in the, a long time ago that, it's, that there are gaps between neurons. Sherrington wouldn't have known this, we know this today, that they're be between 20 and 40 nanometers apart, so it's pretty small. So a big synapse, big gap, 40, small one is about 20. Remember, synapse just is a Greek word, means gap. So neurotransmitters are released across this gap. Neurotransmitters like, you know, acetylcholine, for example. And sometimes if all the transmitter isn't absorbed <coughs> by the next neuron, it's taken back up into the original neuron. Uh, that's called reuptake. So you get uptake into the next neuron or reuptake into the originating neuron. Okay? Both of those things can happen, but not to the same molecule. probably heard about selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. They inhibit the reuptake of serotonin, hence their name. Things like Prozac, right? A lot of your antidepressants are SSRIs. They inhibit reuptake. All right, questions so far? This is all stuff you probably know, probably heard about before. Okay. Now, there are three pools of neurotransmitters in a neuron. There's the ready-releasable pool. They are at the axon terminal. Okay, they're at the axon terminal in what's called a vessel. The vessel is like a little sack. It's good. <coughs> a little sack. The plasma membrane around it that holds some neurotransmitter. Between 120, 150 molecules of that neurotransmitter. Okay. There are recycling, there's a recycling pool, and that doesn't mean they've been reused, that means they are floating around in the axon, in vesicles still. They're always in vesicles. But they're, they're going around in a circle, basically, in the axon. I'll show you, I think I have a diagram in a second. And then there's the reserve pool, and they are being transported from the nucleus where they're being made by DNA uh, into down these microtubules to be put into vessels. Okay? They aren't ready yet. So what happens is that one of these vesicles, these little tiny vesicles, creates what's called a fusion core with the axon terminal, okay? So you get the axons right there, and a nice diagram in a second, maybe we'll just draw, sort of draw this. So there's your axon terminal, okay? And what's gonna happen is a vesicle is going to merge with the cell membrane in an axon, it's called a fusion pore. They fuse, and there's a pore. That's a good name. Pore is just something that flows through, right? Does that make sense so far? Okay. Now, what happens is there's a, a protein called, I always have to look read this because I always forget what it's called. It's called a snare protein. And what it does is it actually grabs onto the vesicle and 
in essence, rips apart the cell membrane and the vesicle membrane and attaches them. So it snares them. It's, they, I think they thought of the name first and then realized it should stand for, uh, let's see, soluble ISF attachment protein receptor. Or snap, yeah, snap soluble, and snap is a whole different thing. Snap in a second. <coughs> so this whole thing, what can happen is the whole vesicle can collapse and cease to exist. So it merges with the cell membrane. Or you can get what's called kiss and run fusion, where the cell membrane, oh, sorry, where the a fusion core happens, neurotransmitter is released, but the integrity, sort of structural integrity of the vesicle doesn't diminish. So they, it kisses and runs. And the first ones that were discovered, for the longest time, this was a, a real controversy in neurobiology. People said, is it full collapse fusion? Is it kiss and run? Full collapse fusion, uh, kiss and run was first observed. <coughs> I, observed isn't quite the right word. The data showed that it happened. This happens very quickly. So that's that clearly happened. We know kiss and run fusion happens. It was discovered in 1978, I think. I'm going to be wrong. It was in the 70s. Don't fusion. If this is happening, it's happening so quickly, can't really observe it. How would you observe it? Well, what if you could measure the entire surface area of a neuron? Right? And got into the 1980s, and people could. Uh, more into the 90s, late 80s. And then what if you knew the surface area of a vesicle? And what if you could get really accurate moment-to-moment, -moment, you know, millisecond to millisecond, readings of these, of, of the surface area of a cell? And what if it went up by exactly the same size as a vesicle? Oh, then we must have focal abstention. So we know that happens now, too. Some people still don't believe it, actually. I, when I say we know, I, I'd say that I'm in the majority of people who say, yeah, it's both of them. And I think the book takes that approach, too. Uh, some people say it's only one or only the other. And I guess no one says it's only for collapse. Some people say it's only this. So there's a full collapse, usually, or kiss and run. Now, the reason people said that it was only kiss and run is that it was a couple. First of all, kiss and run is a lot more efficient, isn't it? You're not, you don't have to make any more vesicles. You keep having vesicles. Right. Oh, and when, when full collapse fusion happens, so it merges with the cell membrane, it then goes away and goes back up and like, it, it, it turns back into a vesicle. And this happens very quickly. But this is kiss and run's going to be much more efficient. And there'll be a shorter amount of time for release of neurotransmitters. So it's just more efficient. And typically, these systems, biological systems, are pretty, especially in the nervous system, are pretty efficient. So people said that's a pretty good argument. But full collapse usually does seem to happen. Questions? The good? OK. So here's a diagram. I just did this in yesterday. So you see what's happening here. There's a snare complex. This is, it's grabbing, this is a vesicle, and this is a, this is a cell membrane. It grabs onto both of these, pulls them along, and opens up a fusion pore. I, that's neat. Okay, you don't think it's neat? I don't care. Um, so again, here's a, here's a more stylized view. You get this fusion pore, you get a vesicle, they fuse together, and a transmitter comes in. And like I said, about 100, between 120, 140, give or take, molecules of whatever neurotransmitter is going to be released are in here and then get released into the extracellular fluid. Okay. 
neurotransmitter? About between 120, 140 molecules. Like it's not, it's, I mean, there's lots of the, of the, of the vesicles, so, it, it, but each vesicle only holds a really small amount. Yeah. So here's the idea. We form a fusion pore, it expands, and you either get kiss and run, bang, bang, or you get full collapse fusion. Do you see that? Does that diagram help? There's the two possibilities here. Two possibilities. Question so far. And this is still, and I'm, it's way more complicated. Yes, please. And it's, this is coming from inside the cell mm -hmm. out to the end of the axon. Mm -hmm. okay. Not always the axon. Not that. The world isn't nearly as simple as, as I've been making it out to be so far. And as it was made up to be in intro Yeah. Okay. Other questions? Good question. Good? Okay. Okay, so we have, here's, here, here recycling neurotransmitters, right? Very nice. This one's a little bit different. So there's a lot of variation in synapses themselves. And there are excitatory, we call them type 1 synapses. They release neurotransmitters that make the excitatory postsynaptic potentials. And there are inhibitory ones, those are we call, we call them type 2 very generally. Those are the inhibitory postsynaptic potentials. Okay, so the fact that it's inhibitory versus excitatory, I shouldn't say is it related. Well, I guess related to it, the shape doesn't cause this, but it's the case that, say, for example, GABA synapses, which are inhibitory, right? Remember I talked about that that they let chlorine in. Um, they have less postsynaptic thi thickening than glutamate synapses, which are excitatory. So it's more like the, the thickness of the, the postsynaptic thickening of, of the membrane is a result of it being excitatory or inhibitory. Okay? It's not that it causes it, because it's being caused by the nature of the neurotransmitter and the kind of ion that it allows in uh, uh, when it binds the receptor site. Okay. Question so far. Generally, there are seven types of synapses. You will find, as a rule, for some reason, the magic number in neuroscience is seven. I don't know why, but it is. Seven? Yeah, seven. And this is going to depend on what the function of the synapse is. So different kinds of synapses, and we'll go through all these in a sec, have different functions. And in intro psych, you will learn about ambient Biology in high school, you learn about what are called axodendritic synapses. This, the connection is from an axon to a dendrite. And that's not the only kind of synapse. I, I think it's the easiest one to think about. You're told that axons generally aren't, still, you're not told generally, axons send information, dendrites receive them. And generally that's true. But it's not the whole story. As you can see, it's one sixth, perhaps, of the story. It's, Again, thinking about the function of different kinds of synapses, you're obviously going to have an axodendritic synapse when you're sending information out. So, axodendritic. Uh, so it's an axon to a dendrite. Very simple. Sending it on to the next neuron. And remember, 
a human neuron in the central nervous system has got 10,000 synapses. Axo extracellular, you can see here we have an axon that's just out into the extracellular fluid. It's just releasing neurotransmitter out into the CSF. Axosomatic, that's an axon with cell body. So this is, there's a cell body, and this is an axon synapse in London. Axosynaptic, oh, here's a synapse, and there's like another axon comes in because I want to get in on that action too. So it synapses onto another synapse. Axoaxonic, it's an axon onto an axon, and that's either going to have to be onto a node of Ravier or onto an unmyelinated synapse, or an unmyelinated uh, axon, right? Because if it was onto a myelinated one, well, it's, there's no connection. Awesome. Axosecretory, that's into a uh, blood vessel to release acetylcholine in this case uh, to cause contraction of the muscle. And then there's the weirdest one, which I haven't talked about yet, which is the first one here, the dendrodendritic synapse. That's a dendrite synapsing onto a dendrite, and we never think of dendrites sending out information. But they must be if they're synapsing onto other dendrites. In fact, in this case, yes, in this diagram, you'll note that a dendrite from the same cell is synapsing onto itself. It's, it's, the two dendrites are synapsing, but they're from the same cell. Take a look at this, though. Let's see if we can think about this. Why would, when would this happen? What would this allow? The dendrite Think about it, sedatory and hinatory postsynaptic potentials. What is spatial summation? Yeah, we got, yes, exactly. You can have spatial and temporal summation going. You get what's called gain. So as the signal travels down one dendrite, and it's probably also getting some stimulation the other part of the other part of the dendrite. So we're getting stimulation here and here. Comes down here, but now it goes back and forth, you see? list of items as a potential test question. I'm not saying it's going to be on the next test. I'm saying it's a nice list. I like lists. Lists are easy to mark as well as diagrams. They also directly test your ability to know something. Just saying. You can think about that. I'm not saying it's going to be on the next. I'm not I'm really not saying it, but it could be. There probably will be a list in the next one because there's. Now I can't think of a diagram usually. Like this would be lame. You should be able to do all these just by looking at them. Go axon to dendrite, axodendritic. That's, like that's just testing your ability to solve a little problem, like a, like a little brain teaser. So there's a lot of ways here we can get this sort of integration happening because of all these different kinds of synapses, right? See that? So it's not just a straight line from axon to dendrite, axon to dendrite. It's much more complicated. So now when I remember I talked about the you know, recognizing a blue triangle or something, you can see how this could work, and it could work very quickly. Okay. Oh, seven again. There are seven steps in neurotransmission. Uh, the book has a different seven, but they, they're roughly the same. The words aren't the same, but they're the same things. Okay, uh, synthesis. You can make your own neurotransmitters. Um, so... The cell nucleus has code for coding for different neurotransmitters, you know, and it can, you can make it up. You don't always have to make it though. You can get it directly from food. So when you ingest certain things, there is going to be certain molecules in there you can get that you can take it from your bloodstream to your brain. So you can synthesize a neurotransmitter. You can store it. You store it, of course, in a vessel, right? In a 100 and 
19 to 139 in spec lines. So I'm between 120 and 140 per vessel. Then it's released. We know it's released through either kiss and run or full collapse fusion. We then get receptor interaction. This is where the neurotransmitter is released across the gap. It then binds to what's called a receptor site. The receptor has two parts, a binding site and an ion channel. And ion channel always makes me think of the video game series Command and Conquer because of the ion cannon, because I'm a loser. But think of it this way. It's like a lock and a key. So here's your receptor site, my fingers, and between my finger and my thumb, that's your ion channel. Comes down here, floats down, opens the ion channel. Okay? Lock and key mechanism. Well, I shouldn't say it's a lock and key mechanism. That's a good analogy. It isn't actually a lock and a key. Just like, you know how... Biologists in here know about this, the lock and key idea of enzymes, right? So it, it, it doesn't, it's not actually a lock and a key. Please don't think it's like little keys and little locks. But you can imagine it that way, and it's a good analogy. That's why it's called the lock and key uh, model. Now, the receptor neurotransmitter complex, this is what you get. You get a receptor neurotransmitter complex. That's this thing when the, they bind, okay? We then take the neurotransmitter into the cell. And this happen, what happens is this thing folds on itself. Guess how many times? It folds on itself seven different times and crosses in and out of the membrane seven times and then it's taken into the next cell. I don't know what this seven thing is. It's really wacky. I think now neuroscientists and people looking for things that happen seven times just to freak us all out. It also could just be me being a little bit paranoid. It's just what they want you to think. What about chemtrails? So, this is now taking the next cell. And you might think to yourself, I bet what happens is this then goes into some vesicles in the next cell. No. It actually gets inactivated. Uh, enzymes break down the neurotransmitter into some constituent parts. Uh, they often are precursors of neurotransmitters. They can be made into that, in that next neurotransmitter or maybe into a different one. Okay. Make sense? Okay. So again, you probably thought, and it, it's not... Anybody, anything bad, because they don't talk about this in intro psych typically, you'd be just told that it's, there's receptor interaction that gets taken. You're not told about the inactivation because it's like, and so you probably figure, oh yeah, not, it just floats all the way through. It doesn't work like that. Uh, now, if, if we don't get binding to a binding site, we get reuptake. Or we can, excuse me, we can get reuptake. So the originating and let's just think about axons here. The originating axon takes the neurotransmitter back up into the originating axon to be reused later. So in that case, we get reuptake. <coughs> it doesn't get broken down. Oh, it does sometimes. It usually is. And we get degradation if it's in the if it's in the extracellular fluid and it doesn't bind or doesn't, or doesn't uh, to a binding site or doesn't end up getting taken back up to the original neuron. It can degrade, uh, gets broken down by enzymes, and then those chemicals get reused. So this is a great place. Almost all these steps are great places for drug interactions. So psychoactive drugs work at many of these stages. 
So how can a psychoactive drug affect synthesis? Give me an idea. It doesn't have to be real. You have to say, this works like this. If it gives a building block, like yeah. something that makes it easier to create whatever. Exactly. So levodopa or L-dopa um, is a precursor to dopamine. Right? So that makes synthesis faster of dopamine because there's L-dopa getting into cells. Storage, I can't think of a drug re reaction there. What about release? Can you think about release? How could you make a drug? How could a drug make release happen? Thoughts? Anything? Anyone? Anything? Anything at all? Has an idea? Anybody got any ideas? How could a drug make a neurotransmitter get released from a, from a cell? How could that happen? Please. Um, isn't there certain kinds of drugs that will like cause a lot, like great numbers of neurotransmitters to be released? Can you just a, yeah, go ahead, keep going. Um, like what? Like ecstasy. Okay. Ecstasy causes a release of dopamine. Yeah. And the way it does that, the way a lot of drugs do this, is what they do is they mimic the shape of a neurotransmitter. So it's enough like the key that it opens the lock. It isn't the same molecule. How do you think opiates work? That's exactly how they work. Screw ecstasy. Let's get some fentanyl. Live on the edge and then die. That's how they work. That's how opiates work. What they do is they bind to opioid receptors. Because we make our own freaking opioids. How do you think we deal with pain? Existential pain, mostly alcohol. But, huh. thank you. But, the way that animals deal with pain is during vigorous exercise and uh, injury, opioids are released. And they're literally almost, in, they're indistinguishable chemically, almost, not completely, but almost, from codeine and morphine. And basically every single opioid you have is a version of morphine. It's just the, the way it gets into the nervous system being faster or slower. So heroin is just morphine. It's just diacetylmorphine. It's morphine to a cell, which makes it travel through the blood-brain barrier 10 times faster than regular morphine. There's nothing fancy about heroin. That's the strangest thing I've ever said in my life. Other than the thing I said on Wednesday, which is I just ordered marijuana from the Ontario government. Um, and then I used my American Express card to get air miles for buying weed. And now I can just publicly say, I did before too, but I was at this meeting of the Council of Ontario Universities. That was where I went on Wednesday in Toronto. And like, you get there, and there's a, a little dinner, and we're having wine, and someone said, why didn't we get any weed? <laughs> All these academics sitting around. At least... Uh, Oh, you know what else you could do? You could stop release. Like, you could do the opposite. You could bind to a binding site, but not open the lock. Not open the door. So not open the ion channel. This is how uh, naloxone works. So this is a... Naloxone is a, an opioid antagonist. An opioid antagonist. So what it does is it binds to opioid binding sites, but it doesn't open the ion channel. In fact, one of the, if, if you're overdosing on, or suspected overdosing on an opiate, you'll be given a shot of naloxone. And the opioid crisis is big enough in this province that you can actually just order for free uh, a naloxone kit. And it comes with an EpiPen type thing. You can just... Harm reduction, right? I mean, you could say, everybody stop taking opiates. Yeah, fine. That would be really nice. But let's worry about people that are on them. So you literally can order them. They're free. Right? So that, that's what the locks on this. Uh, receptor interaction. Same sort of thing here. Again, looking at various drugs. Oh, very many of them are just mimicking 
neurotransmitters. Inactivation, that wouldn't be an interesting place. Reuptake. Well, we talked about selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. I'm not going to go into, I will when we get to this stuff on uh, drugs, but basically they stop reuptake of serotonin. The notion with SSRIs is that depression is partially caused by not having enough serotonin. Right? It's not the whole story, but it's probably part of the story because those drugs are pretty effective. So what happens is if people aren't releasing enough serotonin, what you can do to make more serotonin available on release is stop the reuptake. So they inhibit reuptake. Degradation? Actually, there are antidepressant drugs that work on that. There's an enzyme called monoamine oxidase. It is spelled exactly like it sounds, monoamine oxidase. Now, what monoamine oxidase does is it breaks down monoamine neurotransmitters. It's important to digest. So what you could do if someone's not releasing enough monoamines, which again are implicated in depression, is you could stop the degradation of monoamines by inhibiting the enzyme monoamine oxidase, which breaks down monoamines. So that's another class of antidepressants, one that we don't really, people don't uh, take so much in, compared to SSRIs. Okay. Questions? There are five conditions that people say have to be met before we say some chemical is a neurotransmitter. So sometimes not all these things have been met, and if they've not all been met, it doesn't officially become a neurotransmitter. So sometimes when you're reading, you might see something called a suspected neurotransmitter or a putative neurotransmitter. So if it's present, the terminal might be a neurotransmitter, right? Makes sense. If it's released on firing of the cell, probably a neurotransmitter. Place, you take, place that substance, whatever it is, on an organ or on a tissue or on a neuron and see if you get it. It emulates firing. That's another important thing. If it gets taken up, remember that folding thing seven times, and it gets it for an activation, neurotransmitter. And finally, if you inactivate it, does that block the simulation of the next thing you're trying to get, the, 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 the organ or the tissue or the neuron? Then we can say if it meets all these five, it's probably neurotransmitter. like the most obscure Jeff Foxworthy bits. If you're present in the terminal, you might be a neurotransmitter. That was for me and apparently two other people, but I don't care. I liked it. And I will make that reference again in the future. So, so you'll often see things, if you're doing your reading for your papers, or sometimes even in a more advanced textbook, you'll say something, it'll say it's a suspected neurotransmitter, okay? So I'm going to list some neurotransmitters. There's somewhere between 50 and 200. So there's 150 there. We have, you might be a neurotransmitter. Not sure about those. But there's probably 50 that are for sure classified as neurotransmitters. Okay? Uh, first one, the first one to discover is That's what makes muscles contract. So the short form for that is ACH. Then there are monoamine, I just talked about those neurotransmitters, which we divide into subfamilies. So the monoamine family involves the catecholamines, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and dopamine. These are chemically exceedingly similar. These basically all do roughly the same thing. They're all excitatory. Um, the reward circuit in the brain runs on dopamine. 
If I give you a shot of epinephrine, you'll feel pretty good and energized. Same thing with norepinephrine. Your brain's full of chemicals. Everything's chemicals. I get a real kick out of people that want to eat chemically free. Enjoy that. Enjoy eating absolutely nothing. It's chemical free. I'm going totally chemical free. I'm going to cleanse. What, of, 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 of life? My favorite thing I ever saw was a thing on my... That's not that my favorite thing I ever saw. My kid being born was pretty cool. But... Something along these lines, I went, you know, somebody get the ads in your Facebook feed or whatever, and uh, or Instagram or something. I saw an ad once for GMO-free salt. Yes, there are no genetically modified organisms in salt. I love telling people the water they're drinking isn't organic and see what happens. You want organic water? Eat a piece of charcoal afterwards. I don't know. At least it's some carbon. <laughs> Anyway, rant over. Um, Indolamines, one of those. Serotonin, why is it called 5-HT? Why is it called SE? 5-hydroxy tryptophan. Histamine, there's another others. Uh, poor histamine, it just gets classified into others. Right? Histamine. Histamine is a neurotransmitter. You think, oh, antihistamines. You take an antihistamine, you stop sneezing, and you go to sleep. <laughs> go to sleep because it's an excitatory neurotransmitter. When it acts as a hormone externally, like externally, uh, the nervous system, uh, it causes swelling. But these are similar enough chemically, all of these, that the first, well, we know that schizophrenia, for example, is too much dopamine. That's just what it is. No, man, it's society trying to push down creative people. No, it's not. It's too much dopamine. Don't give me that so we, we now give people these drugs that basically block dopamine receptors and they can live more or less normal lives. But the first drugs that were tried for, with, with some success for schizophrenia was, were actually antihistamines. So you got really drowsy people with clear sinuses that weren't hearing voices anymore. Thank you. So it just shows how similar chemically these things all are. Amino acids, so these are basic, basic amino acids here. Uh, glutamate and GABA, often called the universally excitatory neurotransmitter, which means that it's the most common excitatory neurotransmitter. GABA, which is gamma aminobutyric acid, which is always going to be inhibitory, and it's the most common inhibitory neurotransmitter in, our, in the uh, nervous system. Glycine and proline are, are well, they're just basic amino, amino acids, right? But they also can act as neurotransmitters. Peptide chains like substance P. I love the name substance P, because substance P is for pain. P stands for pain. When people started studying pain, um, sort of neurologically, they figured there has to be a specific neurotransmitter just sending pain signals. But they couldn't find it, so they couldn't give it a chemical name, so it's called substance P, P for pain. And then it was discovered, and they said, you know, we've been calling it substance P in the literature for like 20 years now, let's keep calling it substance P. So they keep calling it substance P. Which tells me we could have kept the name Vegastoff, but we didn't. And we should have. And um, I'm going to lead a movement. We have morphine-like substances, endorphins, and caffeines. The difference, endorphins are neuropeptides. I mean, caffeines are like this. Okay? But they do the same thing. They're painkillers. And they are basically morphine. They are basically morphine.
the difference is the amount that you can take or the amount that you produce is way less than you would take if you were taking it to clinic. There are receptors for these, uh, not only in uh, parts of your brain that, uh, like paraqueductal gray, that, 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 that control pain signals. There are also receptors for them in the reward system, which is why you feel good after you exercise, because they're released during vigorous exercise and, and, and injury. It's like, you know, you go out and you bike, and you go 20 kilometers, and you, you're finished, and it's like, that felt great. I feel great. You go for a run, you go to the gym. Yeah. Right? Feels good. It literally, it's a chemical thing. And actually, what you're doing is you're taking your own drugs. Now, the way you could do it and improve that is you could get like thousands and thousands of times more at once. So you inject morphine or you can heroin, acetylmorphine, into one of your veins. And then turn it on, inject it. Ten times as lipid soluble as regular morphine. You might think, wait, it's got two acetyl groups. The neat thing is, we actually have a morphine, that, uh, sorry, uh, an enzyme that just locks off one of the acetyl groups. <laughs> it's like we were designed or somehow evolved to actually take heroin. It's great. So then all this stuff rushes into your brain, and it kills pain. It was developed. Heroin was developed as a painkiller. That's a, that's a trade name. It's a capital H, like aspirin. In fact, developed by the same person who developed aspirin. Heroin, it's a hero. That's the idea. That's why it's got that name. It's, it's a painkiller. Should be no stigma about people taking it medically uh, for very serious pain for short periods of time. However, it can make you feel really good. Why do you think people take heroin? I've never done that because it's kind of scary to me, but I've watched people do heroin. <coughs> they really enjoy it for the first 20 minutes or so. I asked somebody I knew who had taken heroin once a like, and he said, it's like my whole body's having an orgasm for 45 minutes. It's like, well, that sounds great. I should probably get some. Nah. So you feel good when you exercise for the same reason you feel good when you take heroin. Except you do not you're taking a lot more when you take heroin. So I'm not taking a pro-heroin stance here. I'm just trying to explain something. <laughs> other other peptides we don't tend to think of as neurotransmitters. We tend to think of these as uh, hormones usually. Hormones just act in the blood, bloodstream, uh, on organs. They work in a very similar way, actually. They, 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 there are receptors, uh, et cetera, that are taken into organs. It's not unlike the way it works. A little slower, though. Uh, insulin, prolactin, hemogrowth hormone, vasopressin. These can all act as neurotransmitters in the central nervous system. Just like things we think of as hormones can act as neurotransmitters, other ones, uh, sex hormones. Uh, you actually do make small amounts of testosterone and estrogen in your brain. Very small amounts, but they act as neurotransmitters. Discovered by a Canadian guy. Questions so far? Or transmitters bind to receptors, and it's the lock and key analogy is pretty useful. So again, there's a lock, which is the receptor, the binding site, and the ion channel is like a door, and the key <coughs> is the neurotransmitter. And as a rule, one neuron has mostly one type of receptor. It wasn't always like that, right? Because remember we talked about we could have negative postsynaptic potentials and positive postsynaptic potentials in the same neuron, so we have to have two different neurotransmitters there. Right? So you could have a dopaminergic or cholinergic or whatever. So dopaminergics are dopamine. 
uh, salad cholinergic salicylcholine, etc. So again, this receptor site is the place really for drug interactions. It's the place for drug interactions. Uh, you know, for psychoactive drugs. And almost every drug we take recreationally has receptors for that drug in either the nucleus accumbens, the medial forebrain bundle, or the ventral tegmental area. And those three structures are called the reward system. Nucleus accumbens, I'm not going to write up the word nucleus, but so the nucleus accumbens, the medial forebrain bundle, and the ventral tegmental area. So together, those three structures are called the reward circuit or the reward system or the mesolimbic, because it's in the middle of the limbic system, reward system. And almost every drug we take recreationally has receptors for that drug in the, ner in the, in the nervous system, uh, in, in, in the reward system. So... Cannabis. Cannabinoids. Yep. What about, I don't know, a little cocaine? Well, you know what cocaine does? It blocks the reuptake of dopamine. <coughs> oh, so there's more dopamine. Oh, so there's a bunch of dopamine. This thing runs on dopamine. Oh, more dopamine floating around. Oh, so your reward system part. Uh, amphetamines work that roughly the same way, too, but they also cause leakage of catecholamine uh, transmitters. Ecstasy works basically like that. Uh, well, it's serotonin. Um, you know, the weird thing is, the drugs that are legal now, except for now the one that just became legal last week, caffeine, nicotine, and alcohol, we don't really know how they work. Um, we kind of do. Got a pretty good idea. Pretty good idea. And it eventually all goes back to this, to the reward system and how there's receptors for these drugs there. But there aren't really receptors. Well, I mean, I'm not going to get an alcohol right now. But we'll talk about that next week. Also, uh, we have receptors. What's another one? I don't know. There are some that don't have receptors at these. Uh, a lot of hallucinogenics don't. So LSD, right? You drop acid, and you have a weird experience, and you see colors and or sort of hear colors and see sounds. Right? And you open the bottle of vodka and you open it and then it sings in Russian and you close it and it stops. Okay. Isn't that sort of madman? So, that's not actually happening here. That's because some people like that. They like, so you can't get non-humans to take those drugs? Well, you can. You can force them. <laughs> My dog dropped acid. You're an asshole if you need that happen. But some people like that. It's like some people like roller coasters. Yay, fun. I want to go to a scary movie too. Look, I don't want, I won't take acid. And you know why? Two reasons. Um, anything people can make with grade 8 level lab bench skills? No. Uh, and Secondly, I, I don't want to see the walls closing in on me. Even if I know it's not real, I don't want to go, yeah, I know it's not real, but it really is frightening. But have, some people like that. Do we have it for uh, psilocybin? Uh, no, psilocybin, same thing. We're just enjoying the weird, I may have done that. Uh, mm -hmm. My misspent youth. We're enjoying, uh, again, just this, the weird perceptual stuff. Right? Um, 
So any, almost any hallucinogenic, we don't really have receptors for those. It's mostly for uh, basically every other fun drug. On Friday, I was at the bus stop, by the way, and somebody was smoking a joint. I thought, Canada. Um, <laughs> okay, whatever. Because at first you think, oh, you shouldn't do that. Oh, right, that's legal now. Dude. Our national anthem now would just be all of us standing going, dude. That'd be <laughs> the end of it. Right? Oh, there are also, there's an eighth kind of snaps. And this is, remember I said there was controversy, was it electrical, was it chemical? Turns out there are electrical synapses. They're only two and a half nanometers apart. They're basically touching. Uh, this allows the flow of ions from one neuron to another. And it's bidirectional, it goes one way or the other. These are pretty rare in, they were first discovered in crayfish, which are delicious also. But they were first discovered in crayfish. Um, when you need very fast reaction for defense, uh, defensive systems, things like that, turn out they also are in mammals. They're probably not too. I mean, I, I haven't read anything about human electrical synapses. Even showed other mammals. There's no reason we would have them. There's no receptor or binding site here. I'm fine. I'm a little high. Not. Unprofessional. I'm drunk. But there's what's called a connexon. I know that looks like I've misspelled connection or I'm spelling it like they spelled it back in the 1600s. No, that's a. So there actually are electrical And you can guess. Here's a picture. So basically, you get this really close. They're almost touching. It's almost like sometimes when neurons touch. <laughs> that was for me. Uh, opens and closes, basically, and you can get a flow of neurons. Uh, sorry, of, of uh, ions. Going from one neuron to another. So you can see very quick connections there. There's no need to screw around with binding and protein folding and all that crap, which is bad. but they're exceedingly close together, almost touching. Questions on that stuff? That's a good place to stop, and we'll continue this stuff on Wednesday. Thanks, everyone.
Thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dave, uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures in Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a uh, uh, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time.